Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what is on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's sophomore feature from 1976, Assault on Precinct 13. Plus... We'll run down the noteworthy new releases hitting theaters this weekend in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League preview. And we've each got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. You know what time it is. What time is it? It's time for the John Carpenter Newswire, of course. Oh, John Carpenter Newswire. Uh, so only a couple things uh, on on the list today. Uh, the first one being a sort of related to what is, as I've said, going to be an ongoing Newswire event um, for the next year. And that is uh, the new Halloween movie coming out next year, directed by David Gordon Green, written by Green and uh, Danny McBride. And uh, a film that has the blessing of John Carpenter. Uh, so John Carpenter has been doing a lot of press lately, uh, as we've discussed, you know, because he's got a new album out and he's on tour right now, um, coming nowhere near us. And uh, so there've been a lot of interviews, a lot of, a lot of stuff, uh, but he made an appearance on one of my favorite uh, news magazine programs because I'm about 85 years old. And that is CBS Sunday Morning. Um, Jake, are you familiar with the show? No, I'm not. <laughs> it's it's so good because it's just like it's just like a warm blanket. Were you at like a mechanic shop and that was what was on TV? Oh no! Like I I watch CBS Sunday Morning actively. Like I tune into it. It's great. Um, it's like all of the graphics are really bad. Like they look like something that was made. Um, by like a, a, a Play-Doh fun factory of 3D graphics. That makes zero sense, I know, but it's like, it looks like something that would have been made in like the early 2000s. I'm just going to picture like the graphics they used on Saturday Night Live sketches back about 15 years ago. N- no, because it's like, they're they're always 3D, but they okay. look like just the most plasticky, awful. <laughs> like they look like, you, you remember those old like 3D animated GIFs? Yes, that's what they look like, but they're always customized to, you know, it's typically the, the stories have very punny titles. Uh, anyway, so he was on, um, CBS Sunday morning and, uh, the interview was pretty good. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes. Um, but then, uh, there, there were, you know, across the internet's, uh, articles coming out about something that he revealed in the interview. And so it, it had already been, sort of hinted at, I believe by Sandy King, his, uh, his wife and producer that, uh, this new Halloween movie was going to negate previous Halloween movies. And at least my understanding, my reading before this was that, uh, the two that Carpenter wrote, uh, Halloween one and Halloween two would be somewhat canon. This, and, and it makes sense now that I think about it, but uh, this interview, he said nothing but the first Halloween. That's really interesting. So he's just throwing out the other movies altogether. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that he's throwing out Halloween too, because Michael Myers dies. And also because like that movie, you still haven't seen this, right? Is that correct, Jake? Have not. Okay. I, I finally caught up with it. I watched three before two. Three is a much better film than two. 
I think. Um, two is just, it's a poor man's imitation of John Carpenter. And the thing is like, you can really tell that he didn't really want to do it because he, he still co-wrote it. Um, but he just very intentionally inserts these stupidest can't like, it's, it's kind of like, I imagine I never watched the West wing, but I imagine it's kind of like when Aaron Sorkin, um, like screwed up the West wing because he knew he wasn't going to be on for the next season. Like he just kind of says, ah, I don't care. I'll, you want, you want sex, you want gratuitous violence. I'll give it to you. And it's just this like weird, goofy, like it's not a very good movie, not a very good movie at all. Okay, so here, here's my question. It looks like it's it's going to take place years later, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're not going to make Jamie Lee Curtis 20 again. Yeah. So is Michael Myers just an old man now? That that That's the thing that should be, I think, will be really interesting because negating. So I, I guess spoilers for two and everything after uh, Michael Myers and like they retconned it to where him and Lori, is that her name? Uh, Michael, Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis, they are siblings. Uh, was a retcon of the second one. And so the whole reason that he's actually after is because it's his sister who was hidden from him, but he knew really that's dumb. So, terrible. so I imagine they're probably going to negate that as well. Yeah, I really hope so. But, but it's interesting that you ask because, um, I, I think it will maybe lead to, uh, at least hints, if not answers to something that we debated in the, the Halloween review is like, is he a supernatural entity? Is he like, what is his, what is his level of ability to die? Um, yeah. So I, I mean, this is uh, I'm excited about this. This is the best, and he's also said that this is the the last Halloween film. So uh, there's not a plan for there to be a you know a second and third non after that. On one hand, this makes me excited because it's the right way to handle it. On the other, it makes me happy and a little scared that uh if this works other people may try to do this with their franchise as well what if francis ford coppola puts out no i'm sorry this is the actual godfather part three. <laughs> oh gosh no like like instead of remaking movies we just throw old ones away that didn't work and give it another try it feels like a really risky model but it's also still ip that's previously known so i wouldn't put it past producers to attempt it if it's like gangbusters and and does super well i mean especially in in this format in the blumhouse format where it's not a ton Mm -hmm. of money um so if you get a return on investment you're making bank i i know you're saying that but i will be the first in line for the 2027 release star wars episode one the actual one where they throw out all the prequels and do them again that's a different scenario and honestly i wouldn't put it past disney I, I would really not wouldn't. at all. If this works and audiences are okay with saying, nah, those old movies that they just don't count this and, and audiences show they're smart enough. And maybe it's just that there's the internet and people can talk about it. They get throw out the first three star Wars and make a billion dollars. Um, let's move on to the second and final piece of news in the John Carpenter newswire. And that is, uh, this is an article that I came across on the AV club. Um, recently, uh, the, the title of the article is check out John Carpenter's meticulous production design for the thing. And so this is a, one of those articles that's more just like a culmination of some links, uh, sort of a thing and leads to other things. Um, the, and, and this happens to lead to one, a, are you familiar with, uh, Vashi, uh, Vashi visuals or Vashi Notomansky, I believe. Is, I, is I am not. Okay. He's, he's a editor. He's a guy that I like to follow because he kind of 
a lot of times, I mean, he's worked on, he worked on like the workflow for Gone Girl um, when they edited that in Premiere in, in full red 6K, uh, worked on Deadpool um, for, with, with sort of workflow. And, and then he's also worked as editor on, on a bunch of films. Um, but he also, you know, in his spare time, likes to put together these little, uh, visual essays or comparative things and whatnot. So a few years back, he put together uh, a video comparing storyboards from the thing to the film, the thing. So, uh, they've got that, but then they've also got this link to this. Uh, are you familiar with cinephilia and beyond? uh, Uh, no, apparently I've never used the internet. (laughs) Okay. It's uh, (laughs) a, well, it's, it's a blog that, I mean, they, they collect a ton of information on a specific subject. So in this, in this case, um, they recently had a post about the thing and, uh, it's got a ton of, you know, it's everything from set photos behind the scenes photos to like a working script to scans of old interviews with like Rob Botin, the, uh, the guy that did all the effects, um, and stuff. Uh, it really like, I've only been able to skim the surface on it. So, so far, like I haven't had the chance to have a weekend to sit down and kind of look through it, but really awesome, really cool stuff. Uh, if you want to dive deeper into exactly, you know, sort of the process of the thing, uh, I, I definitely recommend both checking out Vashi's essay, but then, you know, carving out some time and, and looking at everything on the cinephilia and beyond post. Cause it's, it's pretty amazing. Do you, do you know what makes me happiest about this? What? The thing getting attention and it seems like it's coming back around to get its, its due. You know, it's funny you say that Jake, because, uh, I got my haircut today and it's, uh, you know, I'm new in town. I don't have a, I don't have a regular barber, so first time with this lady and she's like, Oh, you seen any movies lately? And I was like, Oh, I actually haven't, um, haven't been getting out much lately, but I've been watching a lot of old stuff. Uh, John Carpenter stuff. And she's like, John Carpenter, the thing, the thing is uh, so good. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is. The, the thing board game just released and I don't have a copy cause it's 60 bucks on Amazon right now. Right. Which, which is funny because that's, only one of the reasons I, I don't have it. The other one is Mondo is releasing a special edition with some screen print stuff, and it's like oh, 130 bucks, out. and I'm holding out for that one. <laughs> okay. So it's not purely the price. It's like I'm not paying 60 bucks for not the special edition, please. Right, right. Uh, I, I've been meaning to call around to uh, game shops around here and see if, see if any of them have it. Um, I, I think it's one that I actually might be able to convince my wife to play. Um, I, I, as soon as I get it, I'll deliver a review for us on this podcast and, and, and let you know, Wonderful. We, we are not board game novices down in Louisiana. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. Uh, but coming from Mondo, I can tell you the artwork is going to be amazing. Yeah. All the pictures look fantastic. Yeah. No, all, everything that I've seen, like the, the, the stills of, of sort of the, the product look amazing down to like the the sculpted figurines and everything they're called minis chris oh i'm sorry the minis yeah all right so uh what do you say we uh clean up the tabletop here put everything away and then move on over to our review of uh salt on precinct 13 sounds like a plan precinct 13 cut off isolated in the middle of a city as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare war going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. 
Okay, Jake. So I didn't have time to write up the formal introduction for this review, uh, but let's run down just a few facts about it uh, b- before we get started. So Sultan Precinct 13, it's the second film from John Carpenter, really his first uh, real studio film uh, that didn't take years to make in, you know, little weekend sessions. Um, this, if we're talking in terms of uh, Dark Stars, this is not quite two Dark Stars, as Dark Star was sixty thousand uh, dollars. Budget on this was still really skimpy at a hundred thousand. We always measure John Carpenter movies in Dark Stars, <laughs> um, and it's it's sort of this straight exploitation picture uh, that has hints of Rio Bravo throughout. Um, so it's it, it's interesting this coming into Assault on Precinct Thirteen, thinking of where we were a few episodes ago with dark star. Um, it's a, it's definitely a transition and a shift and a change. And I think we, we can get into that. The, the basic, uh, sort of story of, of this film, which is, is fairly scant is, uh, this police officer named Ethan Bishop played by Austin Stoker. Uh, he is going out on his first, I guess, is it his first patrol as lieutenant? They, they, they're even scant on exactly what those details are. It was his first night, but I guess in that position, because he clearly knew how to be a police officer. Yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of loose on exactly what and why for basically anything. But, um, and he's, he's looking over what should be a, it should be a fairly sleepy job for his first time at this post, looking over this, uh, old, uh, police station in Anderson, which we are told Anderson, California is a Los Angeles ghetto. That is important to know. And, uh, so they're, they're actually packing up this old police station. They're moving a few miles down the road. So really shouldn't be anything. No incidents. The problem is that street thunder, which is this, as I believe it's, it was Tommy Lee Wallace called it the United Nations of gangs. Um, there's, there's a, some, for some reason, this, this gang has, uh, warlords, like four warlords that work together in, in, in a super gang group. You've got your white warlord, your black warlord, your Asian warlord, and your Latino warlord. And they do, they create a blood pact because, uh, several of their foot soldiers were gunned down really indiscriminately. It appears, uh, by, uh, faceless policemen with, with shotguns. Uh, so that, that's sort of what kicks us off. And then the entire movie is it's a siege film, uh, where this, this gang street thunder is trying to get revenge for, uh, these, these killings of their gang members. Uh, and that's, that's really about it. I mean, did I, did I miss anything here? Not really. Um, Apollo Creed's manager is in it. I thought that was important. His coach, I mean. Right. And also, uh, Scar from the Searchers is in it. He's like the sort of, uh, curmudgeon guy at the desk when, uh, when Ethan Bishop shows up at the police oh, station. Yeah. 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 You, you gotta have a grumpy guy at the desk. Yeah. That's, even if you're closing down a police station, grumpy guy's the last guy to leave. <laughs> Um, and, and it definitely, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about this film is, uh, it, it definitely kind of stands out in John Carpenter's, uh, canon as, as far as I'm concerned in that it's not quite, it doesn't quite feel like it has the John Carpenter voice yet. It no. feels way more like he's playing directly in that exploitation picture, which is, I mean, Granted, it's what he was hired to do. It's it's almost like he's made a Roger Corman movie, but not with Corman producing it. It's kind of like a 
the small scale version of Escape from New York. It's not at all like that. But if John Carpenter were to make this into a big movie, it would be Escape from New York. Yeah. Say, what if a whole city was under siege? Yeah. What if no one could leave that? So it it's a bit small by by design for sure. Yes, by design, and, and it and it does feel like an exploitation film, and it, it feels like something that would be a Blumhouse film. Now it's it's not it's not big. It's one location, mm-hmm. and it's not a lot of special effects, which is something that we usually associate with John Carpenter, just because of the genre he works in. It usually has some good looking stuff going on this one had some gunshots and all and i guess it had an explosion it, it had a a foggy reveal that was i think superb um but let's let's go over real quick some of the so with dark star um obviously that was shot i think super 16 and then blown up to uh 35 um i mean if it, it felt like a student film because it was a student film more or less this is the first time that we get a glimpse at the, a lot of the trademarks that we come to know as John Carpenter, the soundtrack from the very get-go feels like a John Carpenter soundtrack. Yeah, that, that had me, that was probably the most, the, the high point of uh, at least the first half of the movie for me was hearing the music come in. I was like, oh yeah, this Ooh. is going to be good. Ooh, so you're, you're going to be downhill. Okay. Well, well uh, we, we can get there. Um, but it, I think it, it does a great job setting tone, creating atmosphere. Um, it's... That that uh, that opening score, the the theme, I guess, uh, of of Assault on Precinct Thirteen, really good, really solid, still yeah. totally holds up. Um, it's also the first time we see him using Panavision, which is that you know really wide. If you're watching on a TV at home, you've got black bars, letterboxing the top and bottom, um, which is trademark John Carpenter through and through. First time we see that, uh, he's using Metro Color, which. Uh, is just, you know, it's basically, I mean, he said, he said in interviews and stuff that he knew he didn't, you know, they, they had such a small budget. So he put all of the money that he could into the production value that he could put money into Mm -hmm. so that it would feel like a bigger picture. And it does like for all intents and purposes, it feels if you're comparing this to a Roger Corman movie of the time, which I, I think is applicable, it feels so much more polished than that. Uh, my question to you is, and I think you've already given me sort of an answer is how does it hold up? I mean, let's, let's look at it first coming off of dark star. Uh, what do you, what do you think of this as the next step? I mean, we're, so we're between dark star and Halloween. So, so let's say we're, it, it was, it's 1976 and we mm-hmm. didn't know anything that was going to happen after. And we, we just came back from the disco yeah, because I, I I think that's where everybody lived in the seventies. I'm not sure. Um, I would be I would be pretty excited about this. Yeah, because it shows a clearly he is he's punching outside of his league for what should be a little almost no budget kind of movie. Yeah, uh, he, he's tracking up from Dark Star. I'd be a little disappointed that he lost some of that the um intellectual and, and uh, side that dark stars kind of playing around with to, to do more of a studio thing, yeah. but he does a really good job with it. I, I think some of that though, with the, the intellectual side, I, I think, I mean, you definitely feel that going from, from dark star to this, you definitely feel the loss of Dan O'Bannon. I think mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, because John Carpenter wrote this, he directed it. He also edited it under the pseudonym John T chance, which is a reference to Rio Bravo, which is a reference to Rio Bravo. Of course, the the Howard Hawks film, um, which I mean, actually, if you if you watch Rio Bravo, he has a shared commentary track on it. Um, 
but this is also, I mean, in addition to the kind of visual, uh, and, and, and technical things, this is also, we're seeing, you know, this is, I believe the first time he works with Nancy Loomis. This is, he's hired his buddy, Tommy Lee Wallace, who, you know, we've talked about, he was editor on Halloween and directed Halloween three and he's, he's art director here. Um, also I think like assistant editor, um, there's, there's a lot of folks that he works with consistently throughout his career that he's already working with here in this film. I think, I think that's pretty interesting T- to me though, this, and, and maybe it's because Dan O'Bannon's gone. It, this is where he's gaining his footing. He started kind of higher, you know, uh, than dark star, but this being his first film. Yeah. Is, yeah. That's this is really he him cutting his teeth on finding his voice in everything. Yeah, and it definitely feels like a first film. I I mean, I'll just be perfectly frank. I don't think Carpenter is necessarily the best writer of dialogue. Um, I think where he when he is screenwriter, where he kind of shines is in ideas. Mm-hmm. And but the the problem here is that Sultan Precinct Thirteen is pretty skimpy on those because. Like I said before, it knows what sort of film it wants to be and what sort of film it needs to be to to appeal to this sort of broad genre spectrum. And that's just he's he's giving what he's giving us is he's giving us siege movie, plain and simple. It's just yeah. you don't you don't even need to know motivation behind uh, the forces and characters. I mean, really, the the Street Thunder gang. They're kind of a, almost a faceless entity. They're almost they are almost a. Um, like a, a film that we will talk about uh, next month. They're, they're, they're almost like the fog. They just sort of roll in and bring chaos. See, I, I almost thought they were more like uh, uh, Alice Cooper in uh, Prince of Darkness. They're just outside. They're there. They're basically zombies, but they're not. And they're going to come. That's and I, that, you know, that's, that's honestly, that's not a, not a terrible comparison. Um, it's no, it it is a, it is a movie with holes that you can see straight through. Um, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. Like this is a movie that I'd seen bits of here and there. And then I tried to watch it, um, several times and couldn't get into it. Couldn't get through it. It was honestly only, I, I hadn't seen the entire movie from start to finish until prepping for this episode. And I was, I mean, I guess disappointed would be, would be the right way. I, I was, there were, there were things about it where it was just like, it didn't quite, he hadn't quite reached the, you, it's very clear that he hadn't reached the level of John Carpenter, certainly not the level of eighties John Carpenter. No. He, and look, I, I, I find, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy the movie cause I liked it. I, 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 th- I thought it was a fun watch. Um, but I didn't like, I thought those was going to be really good, kind of iconic and, it has a good reputation from people I've talked to. Yeah, it has a surprisingly good reputation. I mean, among, is it that it was 1976 and Austin Stoker was the lead? Is was that part of it? It was. I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one that is very fondly remembered as even you know even critics that you know realize that it's uh, it's it's got holes and flaws and and everything. Uh, they, you know, I, I was aware of that before seeing it as well. And I, and so I think that kind of factored into my, like, it didn't, it just didn't jive with me right. Um, initially, well, uh, but let's talk about what's something you liked about it, Chris. I mean, there's, there's a lot to like, I think, um, the sort of 
the see it's it's the seeds of of what we've come to expect of John Carpenter. I think that's that's the thing that's most interesting. I I do think that um, he's got some solid characters here. Not all of them, but like Napoleon Wilson. I think he's a really solid character. That's what I wanted to talk about, Napoleon Wilson. Um, yeah, let, let's talk about Napoleon Wilson. Man, that I just wish it could have had more more of him in the movie, um, just talking to people. Yeah. When 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 he got to just you know open up and be the the cowboy who you know gets let out of the cell and but still has a code of honor, isn't going to run away. That that was a really interesting and very John Carpenter character, it, like a, a Snake Plissken a little bit. Well, he's he's uh, also kind of like like the Ringo Kid or something from mm-hmm. from like Stagecoach. Um, yeah, he's he's got that, and there's and and that's where I mean with with the relationship between Napoleon and Ethan, and also sort of the relationship between Napoleon and Lee. Um, that's where he's kind of getting into his Hoxian territory, um, which. I think there are things there that I like and things that I don't. Look, I, I really appreciated that. I appreciated the dynamic between the three. I got it. I enjoy watching it. I love movies like that. I love Westerns. I liked seeing this one set in a, you know, a, a modern L.A. ghetto uh, mm-hmm. police station, as they called it. But um, but that being said, it's it's harder for me to go and recommend it to somebody because I don't think this is one that's just going to, like, change your mind on john carpenter say that this is this is transcendent um because it's not no it's it's not i mean he's still learning he's still like he's still cutting his teeth and and figuring out um how things work and and that's that's fine um but i mean the the let, i want to talk a little bit about the hawk stuff so you've got sure. you've got that that sort of it's not even a love triangle i mean that's one that's another thing i really appreciate about this is for a uh, what is ostensibly an exploitation film? He never tries to take it in a direction that's uh, exploitative to his characters. There's no, there's not at no, all. there's no weird race stuff. There's no weird sex stuff. Um, I really appreciate that about it. And and like it's, I think it's sort of amazing that I don't know if his producers just didn't, uh, or the production company just didn't, you know come down with that edict or, or what, but it's sort of amazing that with, you know, as probably little creative control or to say on the, the final sort of everything that, that he probably had, like, uh, that, that he's able to pull that off. But I think, I think that's great. I think, um, we, I, I love as a, she's a, you know, great, strong Hoxian female mm-hmm, for sure. I don't think she really holds a candle to, uh, you know, even like feathers from Rio Bravo, or heaven forbid, Lauren Bacall. She, and it's sort of that she's not a very strong actress, but I thought her character was still. Uh, it let her be a very strong character. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think she's I think she's all right. She's definitely better than Nancy Loomis. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like. I didn't even recognize her because okay, she is. Is it Annie? She is the uh, uh, Paul's girlfriend. In Halloween. Right, right. Um, I didn't even recognize her in this until afterwards, uh, seeing seeing the name. And it's like, oh, yeah, the, the doy, of course. Um, she's really bad in this. I mean, she has, she has one line reading that uh, was just utterly laughable. I think we've just been mocked for something. Let me guess what it is. <laughs> this is the siege. <laughs> it's a goddamn siege. 
He's the one they want. Why don't we give him to them? Well, don't give me that civilized look. This is my station tonight. He came in here for help. He's going to get all the help we can give him. Very nice, Lieutenant. Thank you. No! <sighs> yeah, I know. She, she was not strong. It was it wasn't a great performance. That's one of the things that makes me frustrated with this is John Carpenter doesn't suffer from that problem later on in his career. Yeah, well, even, but even, even working with her, even even working with her, yeah, I think she's I think she's so infectious in uh, Halloween, and she's also she's great in the fog. I know you haven't seen the fog yet. I haven't still, seen right? it yet. Okay, she's great in the fog. Um, so it was that that's a bit of a disappointment. Um, back on the Hawk stuff, I mean, what do you think of the morality of this, this film? I, I feel like, you know, he's playing, he's playing some with masculine code. He's playing a little bit with morality, but I don't think nearly as much as Hawks. No, no, he's, he's not there. There's a bit of it in the, um, what is right for the, the criminals to do the incarcerated. Is it, is it okay to run away? Is it, is it, should you stay and fight, um, not throwing, so the the hawk the the most hawksian moment is is the one you just play where they don't throw the the dad back out in the street, yeah, uh, just to give him to the gang. Um, that was very much would have been more of the center of the the plot. I feel like if it were a if it were a hawks film, oh, definitely. And and I think the the relationship that that sort of triangle relationship would have been played up more. Um, as, as well, I, I mean the, for me, the morality, the thing that's maybe the most weird is I, I still have a really hard time figuring out exactly. And, and the answer is probably, he's not necessarily trying to say anything and that's, and that's that, but you know, it feels like at times he's trying to say, Oh, look at these crooked cops, like the, with the warden at uh, Napoleon's old, uh, jail, um, throwing him out of the chair and that sort of thing. Like, or, or even the very beginning, the opening scene, which I think was actually an insert that they, they got later just to give it a little more mm-hmm. context as, as to why they're doing this ambush. But the cops there, it, it sort of feels with no, with no context to exactly what's going on. It sort of feels like they're murdering these guys in cold blood. Yeah. The, the opening, I, I, until you said it in, in the, the intro here, I hadn't put together that the gang was getting revenge. Yeah, for that, so it, it it seems like the movie really like that was just something they showed at the beginning, and then the movie started when it had the guns that had been stolen and the, the yeah. fully, you know, the assault weapons or whatever they were. Well, and it's it's sort of an interesting, you know, I, I will rail from time to time on on a movie having too much exposition, and I, you know, even something like uh, Prince of Darkness has a spot where it just dumps exposition on you. Um, this is very thin on the exposition, but almost, mm-hmm. almost to a detriment, um, at, at times, just because you kind of need some of that context as to exactly what's going on. I mean, I think there's a line of dialogue here or there that sort of says something about they killed our guys. And so this is why we're doing it. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's in the like mumbled cholo, um, blood oath, which apparently is just a thing totally made up for this movie. When they, they like that Cholo does not mean that there's no, like it's, 
it's not a thing. Yeah. So to me, you can look at this film and start kind of pulling things apart from what is Hawks and what is John Carpenter kind of. Uh, stretching his wings a little bit. Yeah. Clearly, the the wagon train bringing the uh, I'm sorry, the the bus ride bringing the prisoners to <laughs> the other prison. That whole thing, which I thought was really strong and pretty well done, uh, was clearly Hawks. And yeah, yeah. Maybe Car- maybe because Carpenter had seen that sort of thing done before, he handled that a little better. They were all handled well. The the new sheriff showing up in town. Mm-hmm. That that I all thought was done pretty well. The, the Carpenter side of it, I think the thing is pretty much everything else in the movie. The thing I think the Carpenter side did best was the dad and the daughter and the ice cream truck. Mm-hmm. That felt 100% Carpenter, and while being horrifying, uh, was was just a really great job of building the suspense as the car goes back and forth. Guy reaches for his gun. The dad's bringing the girl. They stop to make a, just the the mechanics of how that all worked out and how it was covered. That was that felt like a part he was passionate about in the movie. Mm-hmm. He was passionate about doing it well. Yeah, and it's it's one of the most because I I think when when Carpenter builds suspense, he does it a lot in the edit. He does mm-hmm. it a lot in sort of building, and that's that's one of the most well crafted edits in this film there's there's a lot of you know clunky action here and there um did you do you know about sort of the story behind the girl getting shot and with the mpaa no no what happened so i I guess they showed to the mpaa and they said uh we're going to give you an x unless you take the shot out and the the shot of the girl getting shot the shot of the girl and there's there's varying stories um, I've, I've read that they left it in and they still got an R. Uh, I also heard Carpenter, I think it was on the, uh, the scream factory disc mentions. He says that I think it was maybe a producer said, Oh, well, we'll take it out, show it to the MPAA and then put it back in when it plays in theaters, <laughs> which is the, I don't even care if that's the, the true story. That's the story I want to believe. Yeah, that's, that's all. It, the the movie, I mean, that's part of the thing that makes the gang horrific, which justifies some of what comes later. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're terrible. And and just the order of events, and you not know, he puts the gun in the guy's mouth, he pulls him out. So he's playing cat and mouse with you on, on when they're going to kill this ice cream man. Mm-hmm. And then just instantly, the girl. It's yeah. terrible you don't and see really it. You, well done. You don't see it. You don't think it's going to happen. Right. You don't think it's actually going to happen. No. And so it, it is shocking. Um, the, so you bring up sort of their, their cat and mouse and the, so I, I had a bit of trouble kind of understanding, I guess the motivation behind the gang. Like it seems like they just want to kill indiscriminately. Yeah. I think that's it. I watched this movie a second time and the, maybe, I mean, within the first five minutes, I, Something went off and I was like, what if I watch this in black and white? Jake, this movie is infinitely better in black and white. Really? It, yeah. It's, it's, I, I think it's partially because it, there's really harsh, uh, hard light throughout it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. they're, they're dealing with what they, they have available. So there's, uh, a lot of stuff looks gross. Like there's a lot of brown palette and a lot of stuff that's just like mm-hmm. kind of. Mm. I I do think whenever like they have the lights out later, like mid to back end, um, mm-hmm. and even like they've put some diffusion on the lens a little bit to make it look actually more like a classic black and white western. I think that stuff actually looks a bit better. Uh, but no, instantly like put it in black and white, 
And it was, it was amazing how much better everything felt both in visually, like visually it, it popped more, I thought. And, but then also like it kind of contextualized, um, and this is, this is, this is going to sound really pretentious and flowery, but it, it contextualized some of the, like the dialogue didn't feel as bad because it felt older. It felt like, uh, probably exactly the type of filmmaking that, uh, that, that Carpenter is trying to hearken back to with some of this weird, stiff dialogue. Like I suddenly just believe black and white bad guys. These are just bad guys that run into, that ride into town on their horses and kill indiscriminately. That, that is interesting. Um, that really makes me want to go back and watch it again. I, I highly recommend, like if you, you probably shouldn't, um, like I, if it's your first time watching, I would say watch it through as it is because, Obviously, you know, I, I believe in the originality of and in, intent in of of the author, even with restraints. John Carpenter's going to agree. Go watch it in color. You don't need to change his work. Yeah. And not that he's pretentious about it, just that he doesn't, you know, it's done and it's out there and that's what he made. That's how it was. So that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, if you if you are revisiting it, I encourage you to, to watch it in black and white. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty striking. I might, I might see if I can post some of maybe even just comparisons between, uh, scenes as they are in color and then, uh, and then pulled out to black and white. Like it's, it's amazing that just the impressionistic lighting kind of comes through a little more and the, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a nice kind of little, little study. Uh, when, when, if, if you're going and changing the movie, I just want to know uh, when do I hit play on dark side of the moon <laughs> or is it? Or do I hit play on the uh, lost, uh, the lost soundtracks? What was it? Lost themes. Lost no, I, themes. I, I think you just hit play on Vincent, Arizona. <laughs> on loop. <laughs> yep. You would yeah. be amazed at what uh, what matches up, <laughs> especially when they get into that second shootout where it's just glass exploding everywhere. Oh, that was such a long, long amount of stuff being shot out. One thing I do want to say, um, first off, the the gang felt like zombies. We agree, right? They're pretty much zombies. Yeah, no, they're they're they 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 are not they're not people per se. They are just a faceless entity. Yeah. One of the things I thought, which is probably true, is that the siege part of it, with them being sort of like zombies outside, reminded me a lot of Shaun of the Dead, um, which Edgar Wright, you know, I'm sure he's seen this. Yeah, but what else does it remind you of, Jake, with a black lead who makes it? Through to the end of the movie. Is it Night of the Living Dead? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's and and I think uh, there's a there's a Q and A on the disc. Uh, somebody I think even asks him, "Were you inspired by George A. Romero?" And his basic answer is like any independent filmmaker who came after George A. Romero, especially who was making a siege picture, yes, was influenced by him. So that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, the the the, re- the only reason it. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons it reminded me of Shaun of the Dead was like guns, low on ammo, moving mm. to the basement. Yeah. They're still coming. All that felt um, very similar. Yeah. And, uh, y- you know, Edgar Wright ingest everything. And I think that's where the movie really kicks into gear the most is whenever you get after that. Like that, that second gunfight is a little rough. Like the editing is pretty rough. Um, and, and it feels like, you know, a lot of it feels like they just shot coverage and they didn't know what they were doing. And so they're patching it together later, probably because that's exactly what happened. Um, 
But once, once they get past that and it gets down to, Oh, we're low on ammo. Um, then you've, you've got, you've got a ticking clock. You've got a lot of, a lot of things moving as far as like the suspense elements, the, the stakes of survival are higher. Mm -hmm. Um, one, one complaint I had about it, which is kind of funny. I think, I thought it didn't have enough of the score. Like I thought, I thought that should have been scored at a little higher to keep the the tension high, to feel like they're really outside and really coming in. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I lost the I lost the score a little bit in the second half. Stuff was happening, but it didn't feel like uh, oppressive or always going, or uh, possibly he wasn't as confident in his his theme, his score as he would be. I mean, the way the way that he scored this one wasn't that he went uh, because a lot of the stuff like. Uh, he will actually just play it from the beginning and play what he feels. And then that's mm-hmm. sort of what he does. And then he'll go up and sweeten it and touch it up. This was more, he, I think he just made like four or five tracks and mm-hmm. just, just used those. So they weren't, it wasn't really scored to the film as much as it was a wallpaper effect of he yeah. made, you know, he made these, these temp tracks for moods and placed them where they were necessary. So, um, it's, I thought it needed more. Well, and I think it needs like it needs more like the theme. It would have been mm-hmm. it would have been great if he would have kind of Halloweened it, where right that right, theme exactly. kind of evolved into other things throughout. But obviously, you know, he's learning, and we we see that maybe he hadn't he hadn't figured that out until Halloween. And and that's that's one of the things I loved about this movie is is you really do see, if not the nexus of some of his ideas, you, you see him working out you know he's working from uh learning and his inspirations in the hit finding his own voice but to me that highlights the things that makes john carpenter's voice when you watch later movies after this one you're gonna you noticed ex- you notice exactly what is john carpenter it's not just the movie's great and you can't put in the words why it's great mm-hmm. it's i see the john carpenter pieces moving into position i see them growing i can identify them and what makes them great and what doesn't work as well but that makes this film valuable to a John Carpenter fan. Man, Jake, that would be a really great segment to get into the Carpenter canon if I was a smart guy, but I'm not a smart guy. So <laughs> before before we move into that stuff, I, I have a little little game that I want to play with you, and it's called What the Hell Was Going On? Uh, okay. First of all, what the hell was going on with the Vanilla Twist? What is a Vanilla Twist? I don't. Is that like a half vanilla, half chocolate? But wouldn't that be vanilla Swirl. chocolate twist? Like, why I, I is it just know. vanilla? Is it vanilla and vanilla bean? I, I I don't know. I can't answer that one. I don't know what a vanilla twist is. Half of it has little flecks. I mean, if because clearly the girl knew that she got just plain vanilla, she didn't get a vanilla twist. That is why she is dead. While you are right, it it has to be close enough that. You could mistake it because she got a good ways away yeah. before she realized. And then, yeah, that's the thing is it's got to be some sort of white on white. I don't know. I have no idea. I, I If someone knows what a vanilla twist is, please let me know because I kind of want one, but not bad enough to get shot over. Ne- next question. What the hell was going on with the game Potatoes? Uh, I think it was like Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe, but like prison Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe. <laughs> 
that's the best explanation possible. I, yeah, no, I, I really, I really don't understand what's. I want to learn how to play potatoes. That, that's that's what it was going on there. I had no issues with this. Next, well, no, that's that's really the thing is we need to learn how to play potatoes because it would it would really help with solving arguments. And apparently, if you lose potatoes, you also die. Oh well, he he, he always had bad luck. That's true. Uh, next up. Uh, what the hell's going on with the sick guy on the bus? Uh, he, he, he was sick. He was, I mean, his, he may, may as well have been credited as plot device. I really thought, so when he first started coughing and then, uh, like not, not too long after, I think, or maybe, maybe Napoleon's already asked for, for smoke, but at least not too long after we hear him cough, he asks for smoke. And I thought this was going to be like a con air sort of thing. Like the guy coughing, they were actually going to have him, you know, act like he's sick. And then they were the, 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 uh, prisoners were going to take over the bus. Oh, that didn't happen. I thought he was going to be uh, like transforming into a zombie and I didn't know about it. It was just something I had never heard about this movie. And the secret was like, like this guy's going to turn. Yeah. And they're chained to him and they're on a bus. No, none of those things happen. He, he just had a bad case of that. He's sick. Uh, my, my very final, what the hell's going on? And it's not a super strong one. So maybe we shouldn't end with this, but we're going to is what the hell is going on with those patrolmen who can't do their job. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not going down that street. There's nothing but a old police station. They're just they're just keystone cops. It's uh Is it raining outside? Nah, that's a dude hung on some telephone wire. <laughs> did did you did you catch what that was uh that that's another Hoxine reference. Is it? Yeah, it's uh it's uh, supposed to be like the blood in the um in in the bar when uh Colorado not Colorado. Um Yeah. Ricky Nelson. No, no, it's not Ricky Nelson. It's a, uh, it's Dean Martin. No, it, you're it's, right. it's yeah. dripping into the glass. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's his, his redemption moment. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, which I mean, it's, it kind of works. It, it doesn't work much, but no, they, they feel like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen last house on the left, but they kind of feel like the cops in last house on the left, or it's just like a lot of this wouldn't have happened if you were just competent at your job. Um, <laughs> They're, it's they're, a movie. Suspend your disbelief, Chris. I know. I they, know. There's a reason nobody's coming there, and it's because the the gang is really effective at what they do. Cut yeah. the phone lines, pick an abandoned police station. Know that the patrolmen are incompetent. Spe- speaking of incompetent, uh, the, the one thing Ethan was very bad at was, was signage. He put the world's smallest this police station is closed sign outside. Just like a, a yard sale sign is bigger than that. He's he's a policeman. He's not a graphic designer. Well, <laughs> graphic de- design is important, folks. That That's the moral of this story. Make your signs bigger. <laughs> Outside of Precinct 14, by the way, is what it says on the building. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was something else I wanted to talk about. So this, um, also like Last House on the Left, uh, this title makes zero sense at all. So Last House on the Left, I'm pretty positive that the house is on the right. Um, like, like the, the, the way that the cops finally roll up, it's on the right. And I know they changed the title of it actually after it first, uh, played, but, uh, this is the same sort of thing. It was originally called the Anderson Alamo, another like homage to Westerns because they're in Anderson. Um, and then I, I can't remember who it was. I, maybe a producer or someone was like, Oh, we should call it assault on precinct 13. And, uh, so that's what they, they call it, even though. 
it's not at precinct 13. I, I just imagine a guy with a big old cigar and nobody wanting to tell him he's wrong. <laughs> precinct 13. I mean, it's, it, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a better title. And, and it led to like, I think, you know, something else that I really love speaking of graphic design, the poster for this movie, the original poster is really mm-hmm. great. I really love it. Yeah, it, it, it's really good. It, Anderson Alamo is a terrible one, but what about Napoleon's last stand? That's what I would have called it. <laughs> that it, well, but but then you you've got people who are going to come expecting a Napoleon movie, and then they, and those people are going to be happy. That's not true. That's not that's, true. That's not true at all. No, it's not. All right, Jake, it is time once again to score the score. And how do we score the score again? Uh, We score the score out of a score, obviously. Which is 20. Yes, it's 20. So I'm I'm curious how you're going to go on this one, because uh, obviously you you had some problems with the score, maybe not uh, elevating the the movie in places. Um, And it's also, you know, it's a weird one because it's not the same as... His later films where he's, you know, very intentionally scoring it to the picture. It's more wallpaper. So where where do you land on this one? I, I thought about it, been thinking about it. It's tough. I'm giving it a nine out of 20. Nine out of 20. A nine is, out of 20. That is it, the lowest score we have had, correct? And I'm, I kind of expect it's good. Well, yes, but only because Benson, Arizona was a great song. <laughs> or, or it would be lower. I, the... the, the the problem is the theme itself, if I were just listening to, you know, the theme as a track, mm-hmm. I, I would probably give it like, you know, a 16 or a 17. Yeah. But the movie, it was like a, a three or a four. It was almost non-existent to me. And it didn't elevate it in the places where it needed. That's the thing I think would make this strongest. If it were, it just, if you're out there and you're in film school and you want a project for your film scoring class, rescore this movie, please. <laughs> that That would just push it over the edge of making it feel like they are outside and they are coming instead of like, this is just really quiet and they're playing potatoes <laughs> and they're playing potatoes. So it gets a nine. That's where okay. I'm at. What about Man, you, Chris? That's harsh. That's really harsh. Um, yeah. The, the way that I've been kind of wrestling with this is that that opening theme is so strong and it's, and I never get tired of it, even as it's reused again and again and again. Um, so while the rest of it does just sort of, it's just sort of there. Um, I, I mean, if, so you said you would go with what a 16, if you were rating on the opening theme alone. Yeah. Uh, that, that's where I'd have to be. I think, I think I'd be a 17 or 18 really. Okay. I mean, it's because yeah. it's, it's sparse, but it is really effective when, you know, when I was, uh, kind of working with Philip K. Dickey on our theme song. This is one of the pieces of music that I sent to him and said, like, I, I love this, this little, you know, baseline thing. Um, so it's, it's really good. I'm going to, but you know, obviously it's got to be pulled down some because of, uh, the, it can't hold up everything on its own. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with a 15 on this. Um, but I think it's, you know, that, that theme alone is worth making it noteworthy. Wow. Maybe if I watched it again, I would notice some of the, the music more, but it's just the thing I felt was lacking. And, uh, and so after, after the first viewing nine, it's where I land. It, it's, it's less than half. 
No, I think that's fair. I mean, I think we're, we're approaching it from two different, two different Mm -hmm. places. It's just Mm -hmm. like, I mean, that, um, I, I would be curious if you watch it again, or maybe if you even just pull up the, the soundtrack, um, if you have a reaction to like, cause that's the thing, like for me now, it's a, I'll hum it to myself. That's another thing that we've talked about. You know, it's, it's a theme song that I instantly recognize. Um, and that's, that's, what's great about it. When I take the movie, I recut it, turn it to black and white, put a new score and insert Benson, Arizona three or four times. Then, then we'll, then we'll, we'll reassess the score. It, it'll still be the Carpenter score, not my own. Every time, every time Bishop is in the car in the beginning, it's just been <laughs> yes. snare zone on the car stereo. On, on repeat, yes. <laughs> and when okay. they pick up the phone and the phone line's dead, it's just playing Benson, Arizona out the hand, out the speaker. What's oh next? Gosh. This has to happen. Yeah, what's next? <laughs> what's, what's next is we've got the Clash and the Carpenter. So this segment is where we pit one John Carpenter badass from the movie we are discussing against our reigning champion badass. So we began with the thing, and so by default, R.J. McCready was the victor. And he had a pretty long and sustained uh, reign, starting with Professor Howard Barak in Prince of Darkness, knocked him off quick. Uh, then the creepy innkeeper, Mrs. Pickman, a.k.a. Jake. Uh, Happy Gilmore's grandma. That's right. In in the Mouth of Madness, uh, knocked her off, even though she had an axe. Bomb number 20 in Dark Star. It was no problem for R.J. McCready. It's a shame. I love Bomb Twenty. Keep going. Bomb Bomb Twenty was great. If if it wasn't up against McCready, he, he probably he probably would have had it. To be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, he probably would have had at least one round. But then I think even even then in the next round, his demise would have been the same as McCready's going up against the Shape. Um, so and this you're is you're wrong. Bomb Bomb Number Twenty would have beat the Shape because you have to use an existential argument on Bomb Number Twenty. The Shape just can't do that. Well, the existential argument still didn't work. <laughs> it worked for a little while. Okay. Uh, I mean that that was sort of a it was a catch twenty yeah. two, um, but the the shape it was it was a contentious battle. Uh, you were for R J McCready, I was for the shape. Mm-hmm. We threw it up to the listeners, and the shape won out just barely. But it did not matter because it did not matter because the shape promptly went up against Christine from Christine, and you know when you have a battle that's between two seemingly unkillable creatures. The natural winner has to be the bigger one, I think, is where we landed on this. <laughs> the the one that's metal. I mean, I feel like yeah. Michael Myers is still human. Although, I think one of the things we pointed out, Michael Myers does die in the second Halloween. That movie doesn't count now. That movie doesn't they, count now. They are both unkilled on screen, sort of. Yes. So, I mean, it, it could be up in the air, but it does not matter because the reigning champion is Christine. Chris, who is Christine up against this week in Clash of the Carpenter? Okay, Jake. So I think the obvious one would be Ethan Bishop. Napoleon Wilson. Napoleon Wilson. Okay, Nap- you want to go Napoleon Wilson. Okay. I, I, I mean, that's, no, that's, that's who I would put it. I like Ethan Bishop. You, you don't are, get me wrong, but Napoleon Wilson, we still don't know what, what, why his name's Napoleon. Or what he did. Why is or on what death he row. did, but it was bad. He always had an air of death about, uh, around him. Okay, so uh, no, you're emphatic about it. So I'll I'll go with it. the other one. I was going to suggest was Laurie Zimmer's Lee, um, <laughs> who is this this you know brash hoxie and female. I mean, I don't I don't think she really stands a chance against Christine, but uh, she would still put up a good fight, and I think she would have a really great final line in that death. Oh, let, I feel like none of these can hold their own against Christine. Christine is a, 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 a an eternal monster car. 
Yeah. But what are the three of them together fought it? Kind of like uh Oh, it's a siege. They are they are sieged by Christine. This uh-huh. is interesting. Yeah. This just is, just to kind of So so you got Ethan Napoleon and Lee. You know, Jake, this is against the rules. It, well, look, if it, if it were one on one, it's Christine, and we can end the discussion. So let's at least let's at least have a have a shot at it. Well, what I was going to say is, but when you're under siege, there really are no rules. You give the criminals guns, and you trust that when you throw a shotgun at him, he's not going to blow your head off. What a weird movie that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> would have been a different movie. Yeah. Uh so 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 we're 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 trusting the criminals. All right. Uh so Christine did at least temporarily get taken down by a, a two-person team. That no, that you make a you make a, a solid point there and I think uh I think you know Napoleon has the quick-wittedness but then Ethan also has the kind of ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Um and and Lori is just tack sharp and strong. Uh, yep. I think I think they stand a fighting chance. I'm not exactly sure what they would, uh, you know, what they would have in the police station to assist them. But I hmm. so first off, I'll say they have similar strengths, both sides, because both of them are good with dealing with like like hoodlum gang members. Yeah. You know, both yeah. both of them dispatched them. I would say that uh, Team Precinct 13 has a good shot because. Uh, like you said, the ingenuity to get the, the, uh, was it settling? Is that what it was? Yeah. Whatever the, 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 yeah, the, the, the tank, the, yeah, the tank and shoot it with a gun, but it's not like he was a great shot. Yeah. They went through a lot of ammo. I don't, and I don't think that's going to be, you know, they're going to have a different approach here though. Look, Christine is immune to fire. Christine will just unfire herself. Okay, here's the question we really need to have, and this: if Christine wins this, this will actually factor into future mm-hmm. uh, future showdowns. Is is it, I mean, when Christine is ultimately smashed into a block in the end, mm-hmm. but moves a little bit, yeah, does that mean that Christine is going to come out of that block form? And, well, I, I mean, and, that, and that we should really be expecting a Christine sequel any day now. I, I would say that that's the top at the end of the movie, the uh, the Inception top. Yeah, but it's not. It very Christine very clearly moves. I'm ready for the sequel. <laughs> um, I I am I am embracing the sequel when it comes. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, so if you're saying that that it is very clear that that's not the end of Christine, then I mm-hmm. think even as much as I think. You know, Lee, Napoleon, and Ethan are going to put up a hell of a fighting chance. But even if they smash her, they can't kill her? Is this what you're... I'm saying that they could go into a fight with Christine. They could they could blow her up, crush her down to a little bitty cube, which is how you get rid of cars, go mm-hmm. and live long and full lives, and Christine will outlive all of them, return to car form, and murder other people. Christine wins. End of discussion. But Christine doesn't murder them. It doesn't, but I mean, Christine's not going to die. What if we say, hold on, okay, so no, actually, I think I've decided. My vote goes to the the group. No. Yes. Why? Because uh, I, I I think they have a fighting chance, one. Two, if we kill Christine but she can still come back to life. That could get interesting later. Oh, I see, I see where you're going with this. Hmm? I, I, I'll, I'll allow I'm not, that. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you never know. She's seems to be unkillable. I, I would like if Christine came back. That would be pretty good. <laughs> 
It's just two uh, two other people fighting, and suddenly Christine and the shape show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So are you are you are you with me on this one? Wink. Sure. Okay. It's Christine. Wink. These guys win. No, I I think uh, I I don't know. You know, I don't know uh, what we will have to write up the fanfic for exactly how they do it. But yeah, as a group. This is the first team we've ever had. And the team manages to compress Christine into a little block. That moved, but they win for now. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> this is going to be a really weird recap next time when we're when we're talking about this in the fog. Moving on, our final segment of the review, uh the Carpenter Canon. So, we've got we've got three uh sections here. I'm really curious, Jake, where you're going to land on the Carpenter Canon. Is this a Carpenter classic? Bonafide through and through the essential piece of John Carpenter filmmaking is it a deep dive, a film that's, uh, you know, definitely worth seeing. It's great. You, you enjoy it, but there's, there's some flaws. Um, or is it just for Johnny's mommy, a movie that you really can't recommend to anyone? So coming into this one, I thought it was going to be a Carpenter classic. I was pretty convinced it was going to be just from reputation alone before seeing it. Okay. I can clearly rule out that category. Okay. I think that's fair. It's it's not a Carpenter classic. It's not a it's not a must-see. If you like John Carpenter, I would say you should see it. But also it 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 isn't a excellent piece of execution on a John Carpenter vision. Yeah. It would make it just for Johnny's mommy. But I but I don't think it's that bad. I, I still enjoyed it. There's, I still liked watching it. So I, I got to put it on the lower end of a deep dive. If there were a deep, deep dive, that's what I would. It's a deep dive through the basement in into the sewer that's next to the furnace, five feet down. That's the kind of deep dive this is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, it it doesn't go it doesn't go into the sewer or or back up out the manhole, but it it's down there next to the furnace. Okay. Okay. For for me, that's where it's at. I, because I, I'm I'm not gonna recommend it just freely. But if someone's like, I saw pretty much all the junk, I'd say, yeah, no, you gotta watch. You gotta watch this. People love it. Maybe you can explain it to me what I, what I missed. Yeah. So okay. So let me ask this. You we haven't had it just for Johnny's mommy yet. Is this the deepest deep dive? Is this the lowest on? I I this is the deep deepest one so far. But he okay. did make uh, what was it? it was not Vampires of Mars or whatever it was. Ghosts of Mars, Memoirs yeah. of an Invisible Man. Yeah, they, there's going to be some just for Johnny's mommy, but you this think? one's too early in the career. It, it there's reasons. I think there's we'll reasons. see. I think well, you know, you, you know, um, oh, what's his face? Uh, Roger Ebert loved Ghosts of Mars. Uh, which I have I have heard is actually sort of a remake of Assault on Precinct Thirteen on Mars. Well, and and that 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 may be good, but also you know critics did not like In the Mouth of Madness, and I I, I put it Carpenter classic must see. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean a- anything could happen. Okay. Well, what about that, you, Chris? Oh yeah, I forgot. I have to rate this as well. It's just for Johnny's mommy. No, it's, it's <laughs> no. I'm wow. Kidding. No, it's a deep dive. I think it's a, uh, I think it's definitely a deep dive. You know, it's one of those, I, I maybe it's depending on your approach. Like, I, I mean, as an academic approach, I think it's definitely worth seeing for, a you know, what we're doing, trying to understand, uh, where Carpenter comes from and the evolution of his work. Um, I don't regret seeing it by any means at the same time. I don't think I had as much fun with this as I did with dark star. 
um, which is a bit of a surprise, especially given the uh, sort of reception that it, that it has and that it, uh, the, the, the place people hold it. Um, it's a very flawed film. It's a very, uh, it's a very rough first film, but, um, and maybe I'm just telling myself this because, uh, I want to like it more than I do, but if I, you know, I, I, I kind of put it on that, like I said at the beginning, that tier of like, uh, James Cameron directing Piranha 2 or, mm-hmm. you know, doing, doing a, you know, just for the producer, uh, getting some experience to make a film. And, uh, so on that level, it's not, you know, it's not so bad. It's not terrible. It's, uh, it's okay. Not a, not a, certainly not a, you got to see it, but, um, there's worse stuff that you could, you could put on for sure. You, you are right. This is our seventh Carpenter film. Is it seventh on your list? Yeah, this is seven. Yeah, I agree. Which, I mean, it should have, it should have been two. Like, I think, I think it would have been interesting if we, if we did stay straight through canon from top to bottom. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, that's the other thing that's hard is we've, we've already discussed the thing we've already discovered in the mouth of madness. You know, we've, we've already had some really great, you, you finally caught up with Halloween um, yeah, I, I thought we were spacing them out so we, you know, pepper in some good ones and some unknowns. Uh, and but so far, it's been just six films that I've really truly enjoyed, and and this is just the seventh one. Okay, that's that's fine. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, John Carpenter. Ah, uh, Jake, it sounds like that guy might need a drink. Oh, but if he did need a drink, what would you recommend? Hmm, hmm, Jake, that's mm. a that's a damn fine segue you got there. Uh Um, so I, I kind of struggled with this recommendation because, uh, like we've said, it's, it's a kind of all over the place movie. It's a, it's a film that from, you know, a director that we both love that doesn't feel quite like, uh, the, the films that we've come to know and love him for. Uh, but I think I came to something that's, it's a solid pairing. Um, and it's, uh, this, this beer, it is called vape tricks and it is by a perennial favorite here on the show, Prairie Artisan Ales. And this is a sour beer aged on cherries. And I gotta say, like, I mean that, so basically anything Prairie puts out, I will buy and try because, uh, they, they make some exceptional beers and they, they are generally well above, uh, you know, well above board. And so, and, and Prairie's fairly well known for their sours. They've been doing the sours for quite a long time now. Um, even, you know, before it was the, you know, sour, the summer beer hit the sours. Um, and so, you know, I see a sour ale aged on cherries made by Prairie. I'll pick it up. I gotta say it's fine. It's definitely, you know, it's, it's still better than a Miller light. Uh, but it's not what I've come to expect from from Prairie. And so that's, you know, it's, it's definitely right in the, right in the same path as Assault on Precinct 13 for me. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a beer that I enjoy, but, uh, I, there, there are several that I enjoy much more. There are a lot from Prairie that I enjoy much more. And so it's, it's sort of that, uh, much like Assault on Precinct 13 sitting on your, um, you know, sitting on your, your movie shelf, next to all of Carpenter's other stuff. Like I, this is not the, the beer sitting in your fridge that you're going to instantly go to and say, Oh, I want to, I want to revisit that again. 
But if you do decide to check out Assault on Precinct 13 or revisit it, uh, I think you should do so with, with this Prairie Vape Tricks because uh, it's a solid combination. It's not a, it's not a bad beer, but it's not an exceptional beer. And that's uh, kind of where I land on this movie. And and the beer's way better in black and white. <laughs> the beer's way better in black and white. That is that is true. <laughs> I will say one of the probably the best thing about this beer is one of the best things about Assault on Precinct Thirteen. I, I mentioned I love the the poster that black, red, and white, just beautiful poster. Um, something Prairie's always known for is their uh, their designs. Um, and the, the label on this might be the best thing about the beer. All right. Assault on Precinct 13 is currently streaming on Voodoo and Shudder. You can rent it from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures or pick up the Scream Factory Collector's Edition Blu-ray. If you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with my preview of Week 12 in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Fall Season. A game of tapes to get a load of this. We were standing out in front of the Opolis. The Atlanta City side won't stay trooper side Now it's time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Weekend Preview. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash fantasymovieleague to sign up and get all the details. So let's dive into our preview of Week 12 of our fall season. After a week where a Christmassy sequel about dads, Daddy's Home 2, teamed up with a Christmassy sequel about moms, A Bad Mom's Christmas, to form a festive parental perfect cineplex, we're going to swing as far from that as I can imagine. So, unless you really think the DC Universe is set to implode, we almost certainly will feature a few screens of Justice League in the perfect cineplex this week. Split between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, this sure thing blockbuster is priced like a can't-miss movie. And how could it miss with Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman? The Flash called Drogo. Is the last guy just RoboCop? Uh, I mean, how could it miss? More or less, he's RoboCop. So, I mean, officially, the film has no score yet on Rotten Tomatoes. 
but really the score is just hidden on their website. The Flickster app, on the other hand, does not have the Rotten Tomato score hidden, and at the time of recording, it's sitting at a sad 48%. Yeah, it's 49% on Metacritic right now. Yeah, so is this what you were expecting, Chris? Do, do we have a bomb on our hands? I, I think the answer is it doesn't really matter. Well, I guess, I mean, I'd say it doesn't really matter. I think it'll make money. I think it'll probably perform like all of these DC movies have been, where they're not disasters, but they're also not yeah. making the B. I mean... Yeah, people have already seen it. Sounds like it's not a disaster. It's just somewhere living somewhere in between like Wonder Woman mm-hmm. and all of the darker crap. Like it's It's funny how they could do such a good job with Wonder Woman and this universe still sucks <laughs> in my mind. Well, but they didn't really they didn't really take any notes from Wonder Woman. They if anything right, they tried to course correct after the fact to meet some of it a little bit. Yeah, and it's not like Wonder Woman had was just perfect film that I liked everything about it. It still had those DC Universe elements that I didn't like, but it had a lot of things I did like. This trailer doesn't even really have things I like in it. No, no. I mean, Ezra Miller, I would I would watch the, like, I don't know how much he's in it. I would, I would watch the cut where it's just The Flash. Yeah, okay, I did like The Flash, I, I, but some of the other stuff where it's like, it's a bat, I dig it. Like, that's, I'm like, okay. I mean, that's but fine. that's also to be expected. At least, at least it's down to two hours instead of the original, like, two hours and 50 minutes or whatever that uh, was being reported. I don't know. Are you going to see it? Am I going to? Am I going to see it? No, I'm not going to see it. I I have been burned too many times and we're not discussing it, so I'm not going to see it. <laughs> it look, if, if the public uh, demands it, then I'll be out there seeing it or if just the reviews just swing completely from what it seems like now, then then I'll see it. Are but. you implying that these are fake reviews right now? Fake news, Chris. Mm-hmm. You think Rotten Tomatoes? No. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, uh, I believe Warner Brothers owns a part of Rotten Tomatoes, so not saying there's a conspiracy going on. But, uh, there but might there's be. a conspiracy going on. There might be some collusion. <laughs> All right. You want to run down the other new releases from this week? Sure. There are other new releases? Uh, four of them in Rotten Tomatoes land. What? Yeah, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, also out this week, we've got Wonder, and at 140 bucks, it pairs Julia Roberts with Jacob Tremblay in a feel-good movie about a boy with a facial deformity who attends school for the very first time. Um, this, I don't even know. Yeah. it's It It looks, it reminds me of, like, Mask, I guess. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, the elephant kid or something like that. Well, I mean, I could have gotten, like, I think Mask is a closer, but it's just, like, what is, what is Jacob Tremblay's agent doing to him? First, he was in Book of Henry, and now this. He's got an aggressive agent, that's for sure. Man, I forgot that this movie was coming out. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look great. Nah. Uh, also out this week, at 120 bucks. The Star is an animated talking animal film set at about a half an hour BC. A star-studded cast of voice actors play all the animals in the nativity and could combine the magic of Christmas with the money-making prowess of an animated kids movie or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to see it. It's it, it <laughs> You know, I could I could see it being the type of movie that that kids like it becomes a traditional holiday thing and so i don't know it's fine it's yeah, not it, it didn't look awful and and kids love christmas movies parents love taking their kids to christmas movies it might be a little early but it seems like the strategy with these is get it out there get your big release and then as families are looking at some, for something to watch over the next few weeks people are coming in for thanksgiving and whatnot then you take your kids to see the star yeah i just don't think it's going to make a splash like this feels like the type of movie that makes all of its money on like 
I guess VOD now. I was going to say DVDs, but that's not really a thing anymore. I, I, I know, but also it's like a third the price of Sunday for Justice League. Yeah. So it's it still could make a run at it. It yeah, won't, that's, but that, it could make a run at it. Maybe, maybe. Uh, up next, we've got one that I'm actually looking forward to, and that is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It's a discount movie of the week at only eight bucks. It's from uh, Martin McDonough, who directed In Bruges, and uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, and 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 a number of these, you know, he he's known for his sort of dark comedies. Uh, this this one stars Francis McDormand, who I absolutely love and adore, as well as Woody Harrelson. And, you know, this is a movie that could have some, I mean, this could have maybe even the moonlight potential as far as getting, you know, just being so low that, uh, it, it has a, a definite spot, a definite chance at best performer this week. I mean, if this is even in 50 cineplexes, it's probably going, and people go out to see it. It's probably going to be a runaway best picture, uh, performer for the week, I think, because it's only eight bucks and it looks really good and it's gotten glowing reviews. It's already getting a lot of early buzz about being a front runner for uh academy awards so there's that too yeah if if there's two things i love it's it's francis mcdormand and outdoor advertising so this really combines <laughs> my my two i, I he's I not even joking guys I, wor- I work for a billboard company it's it's true last <laughs> the, the last new movie this week is ladybird it costs 30 dollars, and to me it's the must-see movie of the week uh, I'm going to be honest and say I did not watch the trailer, but they had me at Greta Gerwig writes and directs a film starring Sayors Ronan. Saoirse Ronan, Jake. Gesundheit. I know all the Midnight Warriors are going to see this first chance they get, and you'll probably hear about it from us when it expands to any red state. Expands to us. Yeah, that's the uh, that's yeah. the thing. I've been, I've been keeping an eye out, and I have not found anywhere that uh, I can see it yet. But this has been at the very tippy top of my, like, must see list since I mean it was be- a, the beginning since you heard of, the of it, yeah. And you know Greta Gerwig, uh, she you know has co-written some stuff with Noah Baumbach. Uh, she she co-wrote Mistress America, and I I think you can really feel her in that film. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see uh, you know what her solo voice feels like. I'm sure it's wonderful. I've heard nothing but wonderful things. Also, John Bryan did the score. And, oh. uh, his, his stuff is, I mean, he did, you know, he did punch drunk love. He's done mm-hmm. stuff with, with Kanye West. He's, I, I love his work. So that's, that's just a cherry on top for me. I'm, I'm very, very excited to see this movie. Look at this point, I'm mostly over pretty much all franchises. There's some, I still like entries in and I'm, I'm going to catch no matter what, but I'm just interested in, in these true creative people who uh, whose work has really resonated with me. Greta Gerwig is one of those people, and until she lets me down, I'm going to see everything she does. And she could probably let me down two or three times, and I'm still going to go and seek out yeah, her content. Yeah, same. And and then you you put Saoirse Ronan in with her as well, and it just seems so perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's a brilliant combination, and I'm super yeah, excited. I don't, I don't think we ever talked about Brooklyn, but I was I was really happy with it. Yeah, Brooklyn was so good. Uh, she, I mean, she's good in everything, though. Did, did you ever see Hannah? The, where she's like, no, I, sort of like the child assassin. She's so good in that. No, every time I see her in a trailer or anywhere, I'm like, oh, look, it's Brooklyn. Because <laughs> that was like the, the thing I, I'm going to always associate you're with not, her. You're not going to associate her with uh, with uh, Grand Budapest Hotel? Uh, no, because she was just more iconic in Brooklyn. To me, she she was a supporting, you know, supporting right. she's, role. She's once, you, once you get a title role and I buy, I buy into the movie, you're the title role forever. You know her name's not Brooklyn in that movie, right? She's Brooklyn, yeah. Sayors <laughs> Ronan is Brooklyn. 
Say Seahorse Ronin. Yeah, Seahorse Seahorse Ronin is Brooklyn. Oh boy. I, I don't see Jake, what are you what are you playing this week? What I want to play is as many of three billboards as I can. Yeah. So right now I'm at eighteen billboards, uh and Thor Ragnarok and Justice League Friday. It's not what I want to do. I'm just trying to I, I think three billboards is gonna get the bonus, and I think that's where you have to be. It, yeah. It's leaving forty seven dollars on the table, but what else what else are you gonna do? That's more or less where I initially was. I tried to do my uh my whole eighteen or my whole zero bucks and wound up at eighteen. I, I honestly don't know what I'm doing. It's it's if I could just do like Ladybird and three billboards, and I wasn't leaving a few hundred bucks on the table. That's probably what I would do. Just yeah. go with my heart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but right, yeah, right now I'm at a Saturday and a Sunday, which I don't think are going to do terribly well. But you can fit them in a uh, Murder on the Orient Express because you got to always serve the mm-hmm. olds. Ladybird yeah. <laughs> and then three billboard billboards. Let, let me pitch Friday to you. Here's why Friday is going to make money. The people who really want to see Justice League they are going to see it. They're about on Thursday. Yes. They're yeah. seeing it Thursday. They're going to see it Friday. They're not going Saturday and Sunday. The word's going to be out. Yeah. It, it's a big stinker. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. And, and I mean, I also set this like first thing Monday before I had read anything about the, the whole uh, hold back on Rotten Tomatoes, et cetera. Um, I might adjust... But I don't know. I, all I can tell you is that I'm not going to do well this week. Yeah, it's going to be tough this week. Last week, my FML article actually had the anchors right. It was three of Daddy's Home 2 and uh, one of Bad Mom's Christmas. Didn't get the bottom half right. Worst part, I didn't even take my own advice. I saw the murder on the Orient Express numbers. Mm-hmm. Jump ship over to that uh, or jump train, jump tracks. And uh, yeah, it, it it I dropped down a little bit. So Yeah, I uh, think it'll be interesting, though actually the following week to see what murder on the orient express does with a thanksgiving crowd that seems like the type of movie where like no one can reach a consensus as to what they should see as a family and they end up seeing that yes i actually almost saw it I, it was just because kenneth branagh because kenneth branagh yeah and so i uh went to buy a ticket i couldn't get a seat on friday night in the place i said this is the definitely this is definitely best best picture um it wasn't. Apparently, Baton Rouge is not a representative market when it comes to the work of <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. You couldn't get a seat on the train, huh? Could, could, I don't think I want a seat on that train. E- either I'm murdered or I'm caught up in a weird murder mystery party that I did not sign up for. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, Chris, the winner in our Midnight Warrior League last week was the War Starts at Midnight Prognosticator. I was going to mention that, and then I forgot to. Yeah. So uh, congratulations to not you, but also you. Congratulations to my article. And if you still need more FML in your life, catch my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex or just uh, want to complain about why I sound different in this segment, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. We recorded it in the hyperbolic time chamber. Is that why? That's why. That's a DBZ reference. Hang in there, kids. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss.
Jake, it is time for really rad recommendations once again. So what almost just for Johnny's mommy movie are you going to recommend to us this time? No, I'm recommending one I like. I wanted to recommend the famous um, black law enforcement officer's first day on the job movie. You know what that that one is? Mm, No, No, I was going to go with Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can I can see the connection there. Yeah, a little bit, but um, instead, I was going to go with the Mel Brooks movie set in L.A., on the streets of L.A., um, Life Stinks from 1991. Have you seen this one? No, I haven't. Directed by Mel Brooks, starring Mel Brooks, written by Mel Brooks, everything you want in a Mel Brooks movie. Jonas uh, Rad? No, did, no. Did he score this? Uh, he, I, I actually think he wrote the song. He has a dance number in the middle oh, of it. Well, it's a Mel Brooks movie. You don't need to say there's a dance number in the middle of it. Yeah, that's true. You, 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 you knew that. So he, he, John S. Ratted this one. Okay. Um, in, in the movie, he plays Goddard Bolt, who is, uh, he's either, I think he's the richest man in the world. Um, uh, or the second richest man, but I'm pretty sure he's the richest man in the world. And he, um, second he, richest he, seems like such a Mel Brooks detail though. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's, he's a, a rich, like a uh, businessman, obviously. And he gets in a bet with some of the other people, uh, his rivals that he can't live like a homeless person on the streets of LA. Um, and so he gives up all of his money to live, like the poor life just uh-huh. to, to go out and see what the common man, the, the common homeless person. Jake, uh, are you, are you sensing a theme here? What do you mean? I mean, last time you, you recommended Sullivan's travels, which is about a, <laughs> a film director who decides to go live as a bum for a few days to understand what life is like. Now you're uh, recommending life stinks where the <laughs> hopefully second richest man in the world decides that he's going to go live like a bum for a while. Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying, but next time I'm going to recommend Brewster's Millions, which is about <laughs> a poor person living as a rich person for okay. 30 days. It's like the opposite of life's thing. I'm going to I'm going to bring it back to 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 balanced. Are we are we going to going to start a new spin-off, a spin-off of this spin-off called what Rich Dad Poor Dad <laughs> where we only only review films where someone either poor so becomes we, rich or rich becomes poor so life stinks trading places yeah brewster's millions blank yeah. check i like this idea blank check yeah blank I, check I, I jake when do you think the last time was i watched blank check um if i didn't know the answer already i was i would say 26 years ago but i know yeah, the answer it's it's less than six months and I know the answer because you told me. Sorry, I'm derailing this. So life stinks. Uh, he decides to decides to be a hobo. Yes, um, it's it is really really funny. It is an underrated Mel Brooks movie. I, I in the in the Graves household we quote it frequently. I don't even know if it's available on on Blu-ray or DVD. I think we've only ever watched the tape that we have at our house. Mm-hmm. Is um, this is this like an '80s neighbor taped off HBO for you tape? 
No, no, we bought Life Stings. We support oh, Mel Brooks in our okay. house, Chris. Okay. But these days you can go and rent it for, you know, three bucks or whatever from Voodoo, YouTube, Amazon, wherever you find movies. Okay. Uh, definitely worth it. Definitely want to talk about it one day and definitely think we should pair it up in Civil War with uh, Sullivan's Travels. <laughs> I don't know if that's fair and bla- and to check. Life Stinks. And Blank Check. And Blank Battle Royale. Okay. Now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody brings their own rich man, poor man movie. And we... Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. I like this. It'll be, a, it'll be a round table. Yes. Um, we, we will have 10 people on. It'll, it'll all go super smoothly. It's going to be like Doug loves movies times two. Oh gosh. What do you got, Chris? As long as TJ Miller's not there, we'll be fine. Or Jeff no, Garland. please, inv- please invite TJ Miller. They're way more entertaining than me. They can dominate the conversation. The show's going to be better. <laughs> it's going to also be 18 hours long. Yeah. And it won't be about any of the things that it's about. No. No. <laughs> All right, what you got, Chris? Okay, so for this recommendation, I I tried to find something connective, and I'm I granted reaching here, but uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is John Carpenter's second film, even if it is more or less his first real film. So I am recommending another sophomore effort, and that is uh, The Brothers Bloom by Ryan Johnson, and uh, partially because. I recently revisited this film. This is of Johnson's three pictures. It's like, I by no means dislike it, but it's the one that I like, liked the least remembered liking the least. Um, and with, you know, him having some new big movie coming out, uh, December, I can't remember the title. Start Wars. It's about starting wars. It's a documentary. Are you going to, are you going to go see the star war, Jake? I feel like my job's going to make me Chris. (laughs) Um, this podcast i'm gonna have to go and see it instead of uh, just waiting to catch it on a blu-ray don't no. okay we'll we'll get we'll get there at some point (laughs) um but uh so this is this is the second film and it's uh it's actually so revisiting it i was amazed at how much i absolutely loved it and i i remembered a good bit of it but i the thing that i didn't recall was sort of the energy behind it. So this is, uh, this is a very playful con man story about two brothers, uh, who grew up in, uh, sort of this foster family system. Uh, they went from foster family or orphanage to orphanage. They kept getting kicked out because they would, you know, con one group of, uh, patrons and then, you know, get kicked on up to the, the next, uh, the next home. Uh, and then, so now they've grown up into adults and there's the sort of the dynamic here is you've got Mark Ruffalo, who is the older brother, and he sort of plans out all of the cons. And then you've got Adrian Brody. He's the younger brother, uh, named Bloom. And he is kind of always felt like he was just being pulled along on the con. You know, he didn't, he never really got what he wanted. He was just sort of the appendage to whatever it was that his older brother wanted to do. And so it's, it's a con man movie. That's very playful, as I said, but it's also a last, uh, kind of instead of a last heist movie, a last con movie. Um, it's also got Rachel Weiss in it. It's sort of globe trotting and, um, and very light on its feet, very, uh, very beautifully shot as well. So it's, so it's the sting meets 
Yep. <laughs> meets something else? Um, it's a, You know what it is. It's the sting meets Paper Moon. Why are you saying other words instead of those five words? Um, it's uh, it's the sting meets Paper Moon because it is it does feel a lot like the sting, but I know Paper Moon was a big influence on this film uh, as well. Um, it doesn't, it, it only briefly has precocious children <laughs> and very few knee highs and very few knee highs. There's, there's not as many knee highs being consumed as I would like, but, uh, there are a lot of Lamborghinis wrecked in this movie, like a lot. Um, I think it actually accounted for a sizable amount of the budget. Maybe I should have recommended this with Christine, um, <laughs> to, I mean, actually to put this in perspective, um, or maybe it's, and maybe it's not a great, like it actually, I think puts Looper more in perspective, but the, the budget of this and the budget of Looper were about the same. Um, so really, that, I didn't, that, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. I mean this, there was a lot of globe, globe trotting, a lot of wrecked Lamborghinis. Looper was shot in Napoleonville, Louisiana in the middle of a cane field. Yeah. And they, they, you know, were very cutting it was it was actually very carpenter like in you know using every penny and and squeezing everything out of it that's that's another thing is i think uh ryan johnson is very good uh at that uh you know from all the way back to brick where you know he only had i think he had a budget kind of close to to this assault on precinct 13 actually um i think it was around 100 million dollars or so maybe maybe a little more maybe it was like 250 something like that but i, I don't think it was around 100 million dollars oh you know what jake you're right uh 200,000 dollars uh, not okay. million sorry yeah. thousand um yeah so it, it was uh, probably, I mean, comparable to, you know, the seventies to updated to what was that? Like 2006 when Brick came out, uh, probably fairly comparable when he puts yeah. every single penny up on that screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but brothers bloom, I think it is the, uh, the lesser scene of Johnson's films. So I would like to endorse it and recommend it here. Uh, it's currently streaming on Cinemax or you can rent it. Uh, at all the, in all the regular places. Uh, if you do so, I also recommend, um, you can download. So Johnson does a thing where every time he releases a movie, he, and this is actually pretty smart from a box office standpoint as well, but he will release a MP3 that is, it's, I mean, it's basically, I guess like a commentary track podcast sort of thing. You download it and then you go into the theater and you, uh, like he'll do a little like I'm Ryan Johnson and at this point press play. And then when like a logo comes up or whatever, you hit play and he does a running commentary for the movie that you're watching in the theater. Um, and it's different from the commentaries that go on his discs. So I suggest if you watch this and you enjoy it, you could watch it again, go and download that commentary and uh, watch it with this. It's uh, it's good. Is there going to be one for that? Uh, Je- the, the Jedi movie he's making? The Star War, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be one for the Star War. Yeah, that that really makes me want to go and see the movie twice, which is probably his point. No, I mean, I I don't think that's necessarily his point. He has very good, very insightful commentaries always. No, I'm not. I don't mean it as a money grab, but also it's going to get you out to see the movie twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, one other, like, I'm just going to shoehorn in another recommendation. We're talking about Ryan Johnson. Um, I recently also discovered this podcast called it's, it's, uh, put out by the director's guild in America. It's called the director's cut and it's 30 minute conversations between directors, two directors. So they will screen a new movie and then one director will interview another. So recently Ryan Johnson interviewed, uh, Denis Villeneuve about the new Blade Runner film. 
and they speak for 30 minutes about uh, process and all that. And I, I think I've, I've been sort of, because they're, they're small enough chunks, they're only half hour, uh, episodes. I've been kind of blazing through, uh, the back catalogs of, of these, of the ones that at least, you know, I, I listened to, uh, I think it was James Gray interviewed Jeff Nichols about loving, um, Damien Chazelle and John Favreau about La La Land. There's, there's a bunch of pretty good ones, but it's interesting, you know, a director, someone, a, you know, peer interviewing another director, you get a lot of good kind of inside baseball insight, uh, into process and that sort of thing. I think it's interesting that Johnson interviewed Villeneuve since they both are making movies in someone else's franchise right now. Yeah. And they, they talk about that. They, they, they play with that a lot. Um, and I, I just love, I love hearing Johnson talk to other uh, directors. He's also done a few episodes of talk house. I don't know if you ever listened to that, but it's basically they'll put two artists, musicians, f- filmmakers, something like that, uh, connect them together. And they just, they just have a conversation. Maybe, maybe in about uh six years, we'll have John Carpenter interviewing, uh, Ryan Johnson, since they'll have both re re thrown out and remade movies in franchises. Cause Ryan Johnson's going to direct episode one, please. <laughs> Please. You heard it here first, guys. It's confirmed, guys. Please. <laughs> and that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at Express at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon N3. Find them at dragonn3.com. And shout out to Bo Jennings for the featured music on this week's show. Find all of his music at bojennings.bandcamp.com. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's seaside ghost story of century-old saber-wielding sailors. From 1980, it's The Fog. You can rent it right now from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. Check it out at your local library or pick up the collector's edition steelbook from Scream Factory like I did. And folks, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So to account for you know the ensuing travel and turkey comas, we're going to take a little break before our next not-so-quite-fortnightly episode of War Starts Midnight. But fret not, we'll be back in December with a Civil War showdown a decade in the making as we pit two essential films from 2007 against each other to find out which is essentialier. It's P.T. Anderson's heavy hitter, There Will Be Blood, versus the Coen Brothers' best picture winner, No Country for Old Men. And just to make sure it's a fair fight, we're bringing in Paul Thomas Anderson aficionado Peterson Hill to balance out Jake's obvious Coen Brothers bias. Jake's justified Coen Brothers bias. Look for the episode in the regular War Starts at Midnight feed around about the first week of December. Thanks for listening, folks. Anybody got a smoke?
I don't I don't think we ever talked about Brooklyn, but I was I was really happy with it. Brooklyn's um, so good. Uh, what's the one where she's the little uh, the the little Joe Wright movie? Uh, she escapes in the uh, the uh, not the Ying Ying twins. Who did who did the score for it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Chemical Brothers. Hey, little Brooklyn, what's been here? Uh, let me just let me just. Uh, what is that movie called though? Uh...